Do turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 13. The subject is families at war, or family at war, and various uh, ways in the entertainment industry this kind of subject's been attempted uh, to address. There was a movie called uh, A River Flows Through It that, that uh, picked out a, a family in the, in the West, Western United States, that was at war with itself, and we saw systematically in the course of that movie this family fall apart until they were killing each other off, and it was a dreadful story. On the more popular level, that great contribution to world culture uh, that came to mind when, when, we, when I thought about this theme of family at war was that very familiar drama, uh, familiar to older people here, older than I am, uh, because I was too young, actually, to, to be able to watch it, though some images do stand out in my mind, that, that series that was on television that was named after the city in which it was based. I am talking, of course, about Dallas. And in the series, Dallas, with the big shoulder pads, that era where people seem to be disfigured, uh, Dallas, J.R. Ewing, the Ewing family was a family that was at war with itself. Well, let me just tell you, river run through it, Dallas has nothing on the David family, as we're going to see in this chapter today. There are times when reading the Bible, and especially when your job is to preach on the Bible, you come across a passage and you think, I wonder if they would notice if we just fast-forwarded a few chapters and avoided this chapter. And I have to tell you, that thought did flit through my mind. In fact, several people in the church actually suggested to me that I do this, that I just skip it. No one will notice, they said. Well, they, they didn't know you. I mean, I can see some of you came this morning simply because you knew that this was what I was going to be doing. And you've got your checklist to see how we handle it. Well, there, there is no... Let me tell you this. Earlier this morning, I had to go downstairs and teach this to the children. And uh, you, can, you can examine them afterwards... I had to remember that you would be doing that, parents, so I was very delicate, but any delicacy I had then is now gone. <laughs> this chapter is your worst nightmare. It is about family breakdown. It is about lust, rape, incest, murder, and political chicanery. God is not mentioned in it at all throughout the whole episode. And the challenge, I suppose, to preachers, and here I want to talk to those few of you who do this, and for, for those of you who are training to be preachers, the method I'm going to adopt this morning is not one for you to copy. Because normally I try to be as good as I can in terms of handling narrative, but this morning I'm going to depart from my normal, and I'm going to take an approach to this chapter that I think is more reasonable. Because what I want us to do, and I want to show you from the passage why I'm doing it as we go on, so not up front but later on, so that you have to listen for that punchline or that point. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to listen to the characters in the story this morning. I want us to listen to what the characters say, because what they say or don't say, as the case may be, is going to contribute to us getting our head around what is going on in the story. Can you do that? Okay. Let's do that together. Let's listen first of all to Amnon. 
Amnon is introduced as the brother of Absalom. We wonder why Absalom is mentioned first, because Amnon is the oldest brother, and Amnon is the heir to the throne, and uh, he is a man with a passion, we're told in verse 1. Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So we're told several things. We're told that she is his half-sister. She's the the full sister of Absalom. She's Amnon's half-sister. She is very beautiful. And we've already learned in the unfolding story of Samuel that when we read that, that is not an excuse to use someone or mistreat someone or take them for granted. Uh, She she was not up for public public usage. She is the sister of Absalom, and you need to remember that name because that name is going to be very important in the chapters that follow. But the most significant thing we're told in that first verse is that Amnon, David's son, loved her. I want to know what that love meant. What does it mean that he loved her? If you look at verse 2, it tells you what he meant. That word to love, we use it in all kinds of contexts, don't we? We whisper it to one another. We, we use it sometimes to get our own way. We're told exactly what kind of love it was. Look at verse 2. Amnon was so tormented by this love he had for her that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. She is not married. She is of marriageable age. She is a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. I want you to put all that together. He loved her, and he wanted to do something to her. That's what the text says. What becomes apparent in the story is that here we have an insight into the politics of love. I love me. I want you. I love me. I want you. That is the politics of love. We could say about Amnon that he loved Tamar with all of his glands. That's about all you could say about this kind of love. And his frustration lies, do you see, in the fact that he cannot easily get his hands on her to do to her what he wants to do. He desires her passionately, but she's not available to him. She's of marriageable age. She uh, has not been touched by anybody else. She is a target of his affection, and he can't do anything. Maybe it may very well be that she had a protective detail appointed by the king to preserve her honor as a royal princess. And so Amnon's passion collides with what is socially permitted and what is practically possible. He is passionately wanting his sister. Here is a man whose passions are fueled by his hormones. And he's going to justify what he wants on the basis of his almighty hormones. That's what we hear from Amnon. Now secondly, I want you to listen to this other character, Jonadab. You see, the social restraints on Amnon having any relationship with Tamar might have kept the action from moving any forward. That might have been the end of the story. We wouldn't even have it in our Bibles if that was the end of the story. But Amnon had a friend, we're told. Actually, it was his cousin. 
His name is Jonabad, the, the son of Shammai, uh, David's brother. Ralph Davis of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary says that this is the most dangerous man in the whole drama. Because here is a man with political savvy, with natural wisdom, but without any principle. And it's Jonadab, you see, who puts together a plan to make the liaison happen. And he does it in such a way as to implicate the king. He uses the king as, as the means of making this thing happen. What we're told about Jonadab in verse 3 is, Jonadab was a crafty man or a shrewd man. Sometimes the Hebrew word that's used here is used in its proper context for godly wisdom, godly insight. But in this context, it's used for counterfeit wisdom, ungodly insight. It's also used of the serpent, Satan, in the Garden of Eden. He was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that God had used. His craftiness was wisdom distorted, insight twisted. This was a craftiness that is of the devil. And it is Jonadab's shrewdness that can be seen in the way he cleverly maneuvers David into the middle of things. He suggests to Jonadab that he pretend sickness, that he feign illness, that he ask his father if Tamar would come and bake some cakes. And so without arousing any suspicion, he gets his way. Actually, what Jonadab becomes in the language of John Calvin is he becomes a pimp for his male cousin, he plots the disgrace of his female cousin, and he does so while being disloyal to and using his uncle, the king. John Calvin warns us, he says, if God has blessed you with uh, wisdom or savvy or, or insight, Please pray, he says, that God would also give you integrity and sincerity so that you do not succumb to craftiness like the craftiness of Jonadab. Well, thirdly, and this is most important of all, I want you to listen to Tamar. I want you to listen to her. To this woman, this girl, who is trapped, ignored, raped, rejected, dismissed, and ruined. I want you to do what the rapist, we're told twice, does not do. He does not listen to her. He does not listen to her. We're told some important things about Tamar before we get into the story. We're told that she was a virgin. The word also indicates that she was a virgin of marriageable age. The clothes she wore were the regular kind of clothes that indicated that fact to everybody, for everybody to see. They said that she is a woman of integrity. And I want us to listen to her. Because nobody else in this story is listening to Tamar. We need to take her seriously. So let's put it in a context, because Jonadab's uh, scheme works perfectly. David is concerned when he hears the news of Amnon's illness. He goes to see him. Amnon asks if it would be really nice if Tamar would come round and bake some cakes and cheer him up. And David agrees to that. 
And so she does. She goes, and you can imagine her in the kitchen there, getting all the ingredients and getting it all ready. The oven is on. She puts the, the bread in the oven. The smell of bread is wafting through the house. It's a, a, a beautiful smell, an exquisite moment. And it's at that point that Amnon makes his move. And it's in the making of his move, as, she, as he appeals to her, because he's not well, if she wouldn't mind feeding him as he lies in bed, after having dismissed everybody else, as she leans over the bed, that he grabs her. And at that point, you hear Tamar as she speaks. I want you to listen to her as she speaks. As she pleads for her honor with this man. I want you to listen as she starts with principle, as she moves to appeal to his self-interest, and later as she ends with a plea to this man. Would you listen to her? as she starts with principle. Look at verses 11 and 12. When she brought him near, when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother. In other words, she's reminding him right at the very beginning, You're my brother. This is, this is not right. There's something wrong about this. There's a blood tie between us. This is incest. Incest is forbidden by the covenant law. Not only that, but it's godlessness. It's an outrageous thing. It's an outrageously godless thing for you to do. She reminds him of his heritage. You see what she says, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. I mean, Israel is meant to be a light to the nations. Israel is meant to be a holy people. The Canaanites may do this kind of thing. They may take what they want and violate whom they will. They may act like this way towards their women. But here in Israel, we recognize that we have been made in the image of God. That women are to be respected and honored and cared for within our community. They're not to be used and abused as you see fit. This thing is not done in Israel. This is not done in Israel because... Only the godless do this kind of thing. And we are the Israel of God. We are the Israel of God. More than that, this would be an outrageous thing to do. That word has a history going right back to Genesis 34 and the story of the seduction of Dinah. And it's also used in Judges of uh, uh, the, the rape in the book of Judges by, uh, of a girl there and her murder. In other words, this is something that will lead to war. This is something that will be a horror to everybody in Israel. This is wrong, my brother. She appeals to him on the basis of principle. The people of God don't act like this. But she's pleading for her life. And she goes on to appeal to his self-interest. She says, if that won't get through to you, if that doesn't get through the fog of your hormones, let me tell you something else. Think what this is going to do to me. I mean, if you value me, if you love me as you say you do, if you have any respect for me at all, this is going to leave me in a situation of absolute shame. I'm going to have to carry my shame for the rest of my life. People will look at me and they will think shameful things about me. This will be a horrific thing for me to carry. And as for you, as for you, think about the implications for you, she says. You would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. 
Tamar is saying to this man, not just that you'll be a fool in the way we use the word in English or American, but rather this word in Hebrew means you will be regarded as a wicked pervert. You'll be regarded as a godless wretch. This word is used of all kinds of sexual perversions between members of the same sex or the opposite sex. And what she's doing to this man is she's saying, do you realize this is sin we're talking about here? This is perversion we're talking about here. This is evil that we're speaking about. Don't do this evil thing, she says. And she's getting desperate. As he holds on, as he pulls her, she's getting more desperate. And she resorts to bargaining with him. She resorts to pleading with him. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. I don't think she had a chance, actually, if that happened. But what she's trying to say to him, look, the king knows all about lust and longing. The king understands what is going on here. The king will probably find a way for us to be together. I don't think he would, but nonetheless, she's clutching at straws. You need to see that as you listen to her. She's desperate to get out of this situation. She's trying to use any argument she can find. She's drawing on every argument she can muster. She's trying to break through the fog of this man's desire. She's trying to find a way through his hormones to his heart. She's trying to get through to him. And she's saying to him, please, Please, please hear me. Please hear me. This is wrong. I don't want to do this thing. And we're told in the text she was not given a chance. He would not listen to her. He was stronger than her. He violated her. Literally, he forced her. He forced her. Verse 14. That word to force in the Hebrew means to oppress, to humiliate. He humiliated her. He did what he wanted to do. He is stronger than her. Rape is always a power play. It is always an act of power. It is a way of the more powerful uh, overcoming and having control over someone weaker than they are. And although David did not technically rape Bathsheba, in effect he did, because he had his soldiers bring her to his bedroom, and he abused his power, and authority as king to have his way with her. Now his son is taking it a step further. And in violence is actually forcing, physically forcing Tamar to lie with him. Literally, by the way, it doesn't say in the Hebrew, he lay with her. It basically says in the Hebrew, who laid her. He did what he wanted to do. There was no consensual thing going on here. She is violated. He is satisfied. It is all done and over with. And all that's left are the consequences. I want you to hear Tamar. I want you to hear this girl, this godly girl, plead for her honor. I want you to hear this godly girl speak out against what's happening to her. And I want you to know that if ever you're in a position where you are violated in any form, Whenever someone with more power abuses you, whether it's in the office or in the bedroom, that God hears your cry. He catches your tears. He keeps them in a bottle. That isn't the end of the story, as we shall see. We need to listen to someone else. We need to listen to Absalom, her brother. 
Tamar is used and discarded in quick order. Having loved her, as soon as he has used her, we're told in the text, he hates her. His lust turns to loathing. He says two words to her in Hebrew. In English, we would translate them, get up and get out. That's all he has to say. And in the midst of even this, I want you to notice, in the midst of even this, this woman does not lose her sense of significance after having been manhandled by him and used by him. She is not immobilized by him. Even here she speaks up and she speaks the truth to this man. She said to him, No, my brother, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. She's testifying to the truth. You think that was bad. Now discarding me is even worse. But he's not listening to her. He would not listen to her, we read in verse 17. He called the young men who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence. The Hebrew says, Put this thing out of my presence. This thing out of my presence. He begins by treating her as an object. He ends by treating her like trash. Bolt the door behind her. Don't let her back in. It's horrific. It's horrific. And as the story progresses, she leaves. She's wearing the, the dress, the long robe with sleeves. There's been nothing in her clothing or attire, in other words, to attract or to appeal or, or to tempt or to tease. She tears her robe. She is not going down without a fight. If something like this has ever happened to you, you need to be bold enough, courageous enough to let people know what has happened. She does not go down without a fight. She tears her robe. She puts ashes on her head. You don't need to do that, by the way. Puts ashes on her head, because that's what they did in that, that culture. And she leaves through the streets of Jerusalem, crying her eyes out, because she has been so dishonored. He expels her. Now, she's a public person. She's a princess. Amnon may have wanted her to slink away in silence, but she will not be silenced. She will not be party to a cover-up. She will have justice. Enter Absalom, her full brother. He's going to drive the story for some time now. And he, here he appears, or at least he wants to appear, as her vindicator. And he assures her. It seems very dismissive, actually, the way in which he talks to her. Look at verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace. Don't say anything, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now that's a very interesting and difficult phrase to interpret. Some people say, well, what he's saying to her is, look, there's absolutely no point in you saying anything. Don't, you know, don't, even, don't even bring this up. Don't even make the charge. It will never stick. He's your brother. It will never, nothing will happen about this. You just keep it to yourself. Keep quiet about it. You know, go, go about your life. You can move in with, with me and with my family. I'll give you a room in, a, in my place, and, and you can stay there. That's what she does, and she stays there. In fact, what we're told is that she went back as a desolate woman 
person who had been laid waste. Like this beautiful countryside that can sometimes be laid waste by war. She's laid waste, desolate. Don't do anything, he says. And there's something in the ambiguity of his response that we need to just note, because as the story unfolds, you begin to discover that, in fact, Absalom is mad at what's been done to his sister. But he sees it as an opportunity to further his own political ambitions. We'll come to that in a moment. She goes home laid waste. You have no idea the horrific consequences of this kind of treatment on a woman. The psychological damage that lasts a lifetime. Laid waste, desolate. We need to be supportive of our sisters who have been dealt with in this manner. So by the time we get to verse 22, 23, two years have passed, two years of humiliation for Tamar, two years of anger for David, two years of smoldering vengeance for Absalom. And now we discover what was really in Absalom's mind. He, he holds a sheep shearing party. He invites his brothers and sisters to come to that party. He invites the king, but the king isn't up for coming. And he especially invites Amnon, who's the heir to the throne. The king expresses some surprise. And then the king's maybe thinking, oh, you two boys, you know, you were at odds with one another, and, and we all know what he did to your sister, and it's amazing that you're inviting him to the party, but, but the king doesn't say anything. So Amnon goes. And Absalom's young men, verse 29, Absalom's young men did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded them. They killed him. This put terror into the entire family. All the king's sons, we're told, arose, and they got on their mules, and they fled. Now, don't, mules don't go that fast, by the way, but, but it, as fast as mules could go, they were getting away from the situation. They were afraid of a bloodbath. And what you're left with as you read the story is, was Absalom really hearing his sister? I mean, he was angry. Of course he would be angry. But immediately it seems as if Absalom saw in the rape of his sister the opportunity that he needed and, and the basis on which he could act to get rid of the one man that stood between him and the throne. We know this because he's going to overthrow his father, David, in the days to come. Well, let's lastly listen to David. David, the writer of our psalms, we've sung and we've read some of his stuff this morning to our edification. David, the Lord's anointed. David, the forerunner of Christ. David, the messianic figure in the story. Let's listen to David. Oh, we're told in verse 21, when David heard all these things, he was very angry. That sounds helpful. That's hopeful, isn't it? He was full of rage. He was furious. He was irate when he heard what he heard. So what did he do? He was angry. 
Well, actually, David doesn't do anything. Remember, he's not a private person. He's the king. Remember, as the king, he is the supreme judge in Israel. I mean, his job is to give justice. And David is one who's very, very, very alert and sensitive to the little people who are overlooked in the justice system. And, and he's always got an eye to those who are overlooked in the justice system. He, he is a model for treating those who are normally not listened to or heard wisely and well. But on this occasion, nothing. He does nothing. He could have pursued justice for her. Amnon should have been punished. She should have been exonerated. Nothing. When we listen to David, we hear resounding silence. Now, why is he quiet? Well, has he just simply resigned himself? This is the judgment of God on me because of what I did. You know, the prophet had said, the sword will not depart from your house. In other words, there's going to be all kinds of chaos in your family because of what you've done. And perhaps he was resigning himself and thinking to himself, this is... You know, this is to be expected. Or maybe he is immobilized by his own sense of guilt. You know, imagine what they would say had he, had he pressed this issue. Would they be saying to him, well, huh, Dad, you were a great example. I mean, you virtually raped Bathsheba. You took her when you wanted her. She was beautiful. You took her and then you discarded her. And if she hadn't been pregnant, nobody would ever have heard of this. But you see, a sense of personal guilt should not preclude a person in office exercising the duties of their office. You can be sure that every preacher that has ever stood in this pulpit has been aware of their own personal sin and guilt. But being aware of one's own personal sin and guilt is no excuse for keeping silent about sins that condemn you as much as anybody else. It's the Word of God. It's got to be proclaimed. It's got to be preached. Whether I like it or not. Whether it is pointing back at me or not. David should have acted to defend his daughter. His inaction, his silence is inexcusable in the story. Okay, what's your take home from this story today? It's not one of those things that you take home and you feel warm and fuzzy about for the rest of the week. So I suggest there are four things that you can take home with you. First of all, that the story teaches us that God's word is true. God's word is true. You see, if you fast, if you rewind for, for a chapter and you read the word of God to David when he uh, had sinned against Bathsheba, you discover there that God had said to him, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me, God says. That's in 2 Samuel 12 verse 10. And now we see Nathan's prophecy, God's word, working itself out in the strife between David's sons and later on in the rebellion of Absalom. It all starts here in chapter 13 with these two sons and the sword 
as one son kills the other son. God's word is true. Now that doesn't mean that God makes people do what they want to do. In our confession of faith, we, we, we put it like this. This is how it's, it's put, that from all eternity God did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Everything is within the will, ultimately, of God. But he does this in such a way, so the confession says, that God is neither the author of sin, nor does he do violence to the will of his creatures, in other words, make them do what they don't want to do, nor is the liberty and contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, his will is fulfilled even in secondary causes and through what pe people doing what people want to do. In other words, Amnon is totally responsible for what he does. Absalom is totally responsible for what he does. The only people in this whole story who doesn't, the only person in this whole story who doesn't get what they chose to do is Tamar, who is acted upon rather than acting in the drama. God's word is true, and God allowed it to happen mysteriously for our instruction, maybe even, maybe even today for your comfort. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that this story addresses circumstances that are very relevant to us today. It mirrors stuff that is going on in our society and in churches because our churches very often mirror society rather than being a statement against it. We know brothers and sisters who have been systematically raped by siblings or other family members or by people they know systematically. We know parents who have gone into denial and have done nothing when they should have acted decisively. Some families are as dysfunctional as David's family was. I think of one man who is at the very height of uh, his profession. And at the age of six, for about a year, was systematically trailed by an 18-year-old who effectively raped him again and again and again and forced him into other sexual activities. I think of a woman who was a very successful lawyer, and in her mid-40s committed suicide, and for about 15 years had been an alcoholic. Because every Friday, every Friday, an elder in the church and an uncle of hers came to teach her music. And every Friday in her living room, she was abused from the age of 8 to the age of 14. I think of another woman whose personality has been severely damaged, multiple personalities, because from the age of six, her older brother systematically raped her. This is the world today, not just then. These circumstances are relevant. The third thing I need to say from this chapter is that the God we know is a God who sees and hears and who will have justice in the end. I said that no one listened to Tamar. 
That isn't quite true, is it? Someone listened to Tamar because we hear what she had to say. What she had to say is at the very center of the story. Her pleas, her cries, her appealing to principle are all here in this story. Here we are today, 3,000 years after the event, and we're listening to the story of Tamar. Her voice is being heard. Why? Because her voice was heard then. Her voice was heard by one who sees everything. And if something has been done in secret in your life that nobody knows about, and this injustice that has been done to you has not been noticed by others, I want to say to you this morning, that injustice has been seen and registered, recorded. Do you know something? In heaven there are no such thing as cold cases. In heaven there are no such thing as cold cases. Every case has been registered and recorded. The story of Tamar is in the Bible, so you know that. And so you know that one day, justice will be done for people who are thus mistreated and abused. There is no resolution here in this chapter, but there is resolution to Tamar's story. This godly girl who is now in the presence of the Lord, let me tell you, the Lord himself the Lord himself wiped away her tears and kissed them better. The Lord himself has given her such ecstatic joy that has eclipsed all memory of the suffering that she went through. And the Lord himself will judge on the final day. You can be sure of that. You can be sure of that. There will be justice done. And the last thing I want to say about this story is a lesson that David is not the one. David is the king. David's the great writer and poet. David is the man who helps us get into a deeper relationship with God. Actually, all of these circumstances apparently helped him to get even closer to God as he cast himself on God. But David is immobilized by his guilty conscience. Satan has got something on David. And you know what the, the accuser does? The accuser takes things and he throws them at us and he brings them up to us when we're praying or when we're in public or when there's an issue to be faced. He brings these things before us and he reminds us of what we have done and they immobilize us. We think, well, I, I can't do anything. I, my guilt is ever before me. David says that in one of his psalms. It's all, always before me. What we need is someone who doesn't have any guilt. What we need is someone who can say, I, I only do the things that please God. Somebody can look at the accusing people and say to them, if you've got anything on me, please, please bring it up. <clears throat> There's nobody else in this room could do that. If, if there's Anybody here has got something on me. Please say it. Only one person could say, the devil has got nothing on me. You know who that was? David's son, Jesus. Because what this lesson teaches us is that David needed Jesus too. David needed Jesus too. 
just like you do, just like I do. We need Jesus. There is no resolution in this story because the resolution is going to come when the Redeemer comes to make everything new. David, if he was here, would say to us, look, before God, I have nothing to plead. I have nothing to say. I'm speechless. I have nothing to bring to the story, nothing to bargain with. I am an absolute mess. And I'm trusting in the promise of God and in the Word of God, and I'm trusting in the one who's to come who will be my Savior. I want to say to you this morning the lesson of this chapter. Among these many other lessons, the final lesson is this. David is not the one. David needed Jesus too. Jesus is there for you. He's there for you. Let's pray. Father, there are people listening to me in this room and around the world by webcast, and among those people are those who cry every night with bitter tears about things that have happened in the dark and in the past, perhaps even in the present. They wonder whether these things will ever be brought to light, ever dealt with decisively. We Pray that you would comfort them in knowing that you are the God who sees, the God who comforts, the God who will one day deal with all sin and deal with our tears. You hold our tears in a bottle, and one day you will kiss them better and make us better too. We thank you that Jesus is who we need. Unlike David, the judge that didn't act, he is the judge who will act. He will act decisively. And he will act in our favor. And we praise you for that as we pray in his name. Amen.